everyone, it's Clara Barker here and I'm back with another one of my science chats. So in these chats, basically, I um, just have a, I have a chat. I have a chat with a friend of mine uh, who is in science or engineering in the STEM fields, basically, who I really get on with, that I really enjoy uh, chatting to. And also it gives me a really good opportunity to learn as well. I might forget what I've learned, but I do try and learn. And today's guest, uh, Shazia uh, Ishmael, has uh, taught me so much about uh, quantum quantum physics in the past. I've forgotten a lot of it, so that's great. I can re-ask those questions. But yeah, it's it's really good to be able to talk to Shazia. And then I'm also, this is a great opportunity. We haven't caught up in a long time, but we do work in the same department, so we know each other quite well. Um, uh, that'll probably be obvious. Uh, I will say that uh, Shazia has got a Twitter, so I'll put the link below so you can follow her. And uh, don't forget to sort of subscribe and like to this, but uh, that will go to the intro. And then we'll welcome Shazia. So, hello, Shazia. Hello, Clara. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited to be here. I repeat, a year and a half later. I know, I know. So for uh, anyone listening, basically Shazia uh, offered to be my guinea pig a year and a half ago when I thought that filming in person, so I set up a camera and we did the sound and we filmed it in my lab, but it was really noisy. I had one video, the lighting was terrible. Basically, the content was amazing, but it wasn't going to look great. So I'm really, really pleased that uh, uh, you were willing to come back and do it again and talk oh, about cool. all that stuff again. Thank You've you had so some really good guests. I thought as a, a high standard has been set. This is going to be me waffling about physics. That's um. perfectly... F- well, that's what we want. We want people to waffle... Up, uh, waffle's the wrong word. But we want people to talk about their science. That's what I want this to be. I want it to be a, an opportunity for me to learn stuff. And it's kind of interesting because I've had Andrew and Clara on and because I sort of knew a little bit about what they were doing, but not loads, I was able to ask questions with uh, Izzy. I feel like I don't know quite as much of her area. So sometimes, um, I don't know, I'm not sure what the balance is, but I'm sure sometimes I ask questions because it's like, I need to know this and I want to know this. And other times it's just purely interest. And so I should say with that, um, who are you? What do you do? Uh, so my name is Charles Rishmau. I am a PhD student at the University of Oxford in the materials department. So I work with Clara. Um, my PhD project is using defects in diamonds to like network them together to become a quantum computer eventually. So it's a lot of buzzwords for like sitting in a dark room a lot of the time, basically. Um, me and Clara actually met through the Equality and Diversity Committee in the department. And we've done like quite a lot of projects together and been to like loads of conferences and stuff together. So that's also a lot of what I do as well, not just science at Oxford. Yeah, no, it's uh, like you say, it's, I think it's that important line and we talk so much and when we're in the department and we're able to see each other, you're the person that I know I can go to and we can have a really good chat about what needs to change and what's working many, and what isn't. Many a debrief about things happening in the department or in yeah. Oxford. Oxford in general, materials isn't perfect, but I'd say that um, we are, I felt really comfortable in, in the materials mm. department in Oxford. I feel it's a really good place to be and like say it's not perfect but they're also willing to listen like yeah and that is that's a really good thing and i'd say uh the the current um head uh, angus is definitely willing to listen to stuff and 
Patrick and uh, Peter, the previous ones as well, they've always been willing to listen, which is, I know I can always bend their ear. <laughs> I think they're also committed to like, you know, do something wrong and like, what can we do differently as well? Whereas a lot in Oxford, you get a lot of talk and not much action. And I think materials is kind of on the better side of that compared yeah. to other departments. I mean, the standard's pretty low, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's that's true and I, I, one thing that i would say is that um when we're talking about improving things we'll talk about this a little bit more sort of towards the end but when we're talking about quality diversity often we're saying we want to change the face of sort of science to make it more diverse to make it more open but that doesn't mean that we're saying that um the stereotypical old white straight gray-haired men um have to go no actually like angus and and uh, and co are fantastic allies. Yeah, and they've all uh, most, been... of the, most professors are white men in the department as well. Well, yeah, I mean there is that, but this is the point. We need those on board because that's yeah. how things will change. And it's great to have people who I count as really strong allies in the department. Uh, so we can go into that. We we may well do. Um, but let's uh, let's start with your science. So what do you do? What do you do in the department? So, I don't know how to start this. Okay. Do the elevator pitch. Start with the elevator pitch. So, basically, um, the work that I'm doing is a lot of, like, practical experiments or building equipment that will hopefully lead to a viable quantum computer. So, quantum computing is basically a different, basically, almost a different type of computer completely to what we currently use. But at the moment, what we call classical computing all data is like stored in the binary, so one or zero. So you have these like magnetic switches and stuff and everyone kind of knows like the basics of how binary work works. But quantum computer sort of enhances or uses the like quantum weirdness of like how things can be one and zero at the same time. Um, and basically it's a completely different way of computing essentially. So you don't just have to be one or zero, you can be one and zero, one and zero at the same time. So you have infinitely more bits or states in which to like store data and you, the way you would carry out algorithms or problem solving is completely different as well. So it's not necessarily like a better computer, it's almost like a completely different type of computing needs, completely different networks, completely different materials. Um, so yeah, I know Andrew was on your podcast like a few weeks ago, yeah. or ages ago maybe at this point, um, mm. and he talked about quantum materials and things they could be used for. So that's basically what my project as well in terms of like building the equipment to control those materials um, and the material that I happen to look at is diamond so diamond's quite like a not necessarily new quantum material but we've only just you know, been able to grow like really high quality diamond that can be used for quantum applications and we actually look at imperfections in the diamond so I look at the defect called a nitrogen vacancy center so it's got a nitrogen in the place of a carbon atom in the diamond lattice, and then it's got a vacancy next to it. And this really, this, this defect has lots of unique properties that mean it's ideal to be the building block of a quantum computer. So all of my like, work is to control the defect in certain ways so it can be used eventually for different quantum applications. <laughs> and it, it is it is mind-blowing. Like, or do or like some slides or like a whiteboard somewhere. So oh, <laughs> Oh, we should have set that up. Yeah, it's it, it, it's baffling. So what I mean, what you're saying is basically the way that we store data at the moment, this binary, uh, this ones and zeros, and that's that's great for now. 
but, but there's still a lot of limitations so even really like simple um simulations of like a two atom problem you have to make like so many assumptions because what's inherently like a quantum problem you're not you don't have a quantum basis in which to solve it still so solving in a binary system so you kind of have to make a lot of assumptions that aren't necessarily like accurate so you're kind of not getting accurate measurements of your simulations I suppose the one like analogy that people always use to kind of uh, illustrate the power of a quantum computer is like if you were in a library and you're looking for like a certain word in these like millions of books that you have a classical computer would look through every single book individually to look for this one word you're looking for okay. but a quantum computer would look through all the books at the same time find that word so you can do things like a lot quicker but in a completely different way essentially that's amazing so i i think um i mean that's that's sort of a, a, a key concept isn't it that we can there's more uh processing power as it as it were like you say you can and the truth is that as we move on uh, with our scientific experiments and we're trying to design more things it takes yeah. it takes an awful lot of processing power to do these things i know that we have people who are running simulations uh in plasmas and i think they'd leave their computers running for three days and their high power computers and you're saying that we can do this a fair bit faster yeah so we're not at that stage yet where a quantum computer surpasses like supercomputer powers at the moment because we haven't got enough qubits or like quantum bits all working together to make it significantly better than like a, a regular computer or a supercomputer but they're hoping to get there essentially like ibm have got like 50 qubits online that you can like go and code in little things and run little experiments and things like that and there was obviously i mean like quantum is such a buzzword at the moment there was a paper last year from google there was one earlier in the year that talked about like quantum i hate using that word quantum supremacy but how like quantum computers are are better than classical computers and things like that i think that's that's interesting so i i, I um i did a little video on have i done it no i haven't it's coming up uh, a little okay. but it will be out um by the time we release this actually on fusion energy and so fusion energy it's something that we're talking about and we're trying to work on and the Ooh. truth of the matter is at the moment we're just breaking even with uh, creating fusion energy we're Ooh. years and years and we're talking tens of years away from actually sort of getting results from the new fusion generator in ITA. but there's the chance that it'll be this big huge breakthrough and i think it's the same with quantum computing we're working towards it because we want this breakthrough mm. right it's interesting how like quantum computing and nuclear fusion are always compared as these two like huh. scientific ideas that are like just on the cusp like we're nearly there like a bit more research because when i was at school nuclear fusion was like the next best thing this is probably like you know 10 12 years ago now um they were like, oh, nuclear fusion is going to be amazing. We had someone from Rutherford come to our school and talk to us about how good it was going to be. And it's still like not quite there yet. And yeah. not, that, not that we're like overselling quantum computing, but I think there was a lot of hype with nuclear fusion. And the way that scientists talk about quantum computing, they're kind of careful not to oversell it too much. Like as to where we currently are now and where we're planning to be, there's still like a long way to go. And I think people are quite realistic about how far away we actually are from having like everyone using quantum computers. Like, I don't think it's ever really going to happen. Everyone's going to have a quantum computer in their pocket or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I've, I've just been realizing like, 
you know, we were talking, I, I was talking about Fusion, I brought Fusion up, and I realised that a lot of the um, stuff with Plasmas and with things like CERN is the, mm. the calculations, how long it takes to do the calculations. Ironically, if we had the quantum computers, then we'd be able to, we'd be <laughs> able to develop Fusion energy a little bit faster. Yeah, <laughs> But, yeah, I don't, I, what is what is the like rate limiting step in fusion at the moment? Uh, so the new the new system that they're going to build in so ITER, which is just they've just started building uh, ITER in France, and that I mean they've not going to they're not going to have started running experiments on that until twenty thirty five. So they hope to have re- some results by twenty forty. Uh, it's the size, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the reason that I've talked about fusion, so I, I I can't I can't say that I'm an expert on it, but the reason that I was talking about it is because we use superconducting magnets to bend the plasma to keep the plasma away from the walls because otherwise the walls melt, and so part of it is the the thing with ITER and the next thing they're going to do with the um, large hadron collider is increase the superconductors so when i'm talking about increase the superconductors i'm talking about increasing the uh, magnetic field that they can generate so that we can confine the plasma even more so so it's sort of a superconductor thing but don't it's not completely our fault but you know that's yeah <laughs> it's just it's one part of the puzzle anyway there's there are others i think also with so many of these like contemporary science problems we're trying to solve it's the engineering of like all these different different um disciplines coming together yeah so like my training is actually in physics like i've got physics undergraduate but i work in the materials department and actually a lot of my phd in kind of engineering based like problem solving um and even though i'm like you know building i actually do a lot of like local microscope buildings i do a lot of optics and like laser lining and things like that as well as sort of like materials processing and some like fabrication work and some like microwave engineering it's a lot of these different disciplines all coming together and um the work that i'm doing is actually funded by the quantum computing and simulation hub which is got like government money to fund it okay and we have all these different like work packages and there's people who do like so many different things like optics photonics like people writing code and all these different things all like coming together to work on this one project because it sounds quite similar to fusion it's all these different departments all like coming together essentially to get this one thing to work you can't just be an island and hope your, your experiment works as it were it really relies on collaboration yeah i i um so the i the one of the one of the conversations i've had before is with uh that's clara nellis of of um uh, who works at cern and what was interesting there was we were talking about the publishing of um, null data or experiments that failed. Like in the particle physics world, it's you're encouraged to publish all results because that moves the field forward. Whereas I know in my own particular areas in the past, if you've got null results, yeah, you yeah. don't publish it. And yeah. you'll be talking to a group and you'll find out that they found that out four years ago. Mm. But everyone wants to get their name on the paper and so they want to get it out first so i thought that was kind of interesting and i i there was a ted talk um so i did a tedx london uh, women talk in 2018 
and one of the um other speakers oh my goodness i think she was uh she was high up at ESA or head of ESA or something so the european space agency and she was saying that you know all, all the countries around the world are arguing with each other and yet when it comes to space and looking at the data they share everything and they're talking to each other and they're looking at um the planet and they're looking at the you know whether it's sort of issues that are happening because of the weather you know the environment and things like that they're actually working together even though politically on the news all you ever hear about them is you know them arguing with each other Mm. it's something actually in science that i really had to struggle to get my head around how like some things are really collaborative and then some things really aren't and like maybe this is like drifting too much away from actual science but i think it's important because no one talks about it enough yeah it's how competitive like yeah. science is like right now as a fourth year phd i'm supposed to be like writing up my thesis like applying yeah. for postdocs or i'm supposed to be i'm not doing that um you know writing up papers and things but actually and everyone wants to hire a postdoc that's got all these like first author papers and everyone wants to publish a paper that's like the next big thing and we're all like selling our science is like amazing but why aren't we publishing the data that hasn't worked as well? Why is it only kept for someone's thesis or kept in a lab book? I, yeah, I mean, I, th- I honestly... also the idea of like only the first author being important on the paper when literally you'll have like 10, 50 on like what the, on the LIGO papers, there was like thousands of authors on it. Yeah. Like all of these people, all of their work has been important, even if it's just been like a conversation you've had and like a bit of like, you know coding or simulations for you that's all like, important yeah on paper and there's not every scientist is gonna have a first or a first author paper um but it doesn't mean they're not a good scientist or yeah. a good like group member to have or a good like a good addition to your team or a positive addition to your team that's why i think it's interesting in science how we like value worth of scientists and how we value like our research as it were like it's all got to fit into these like you know four page papers that in a journal that's got to have a certain impact factor but all of that is incredibly biased and always other reasons why it's not accurate yeah it doesn't really show you like how good or bad that person is as a scientist or like how hard they've worked maybe hasn't hasn't panned out for them or like what else to them what's been in the lab or how much time they've spent like helping everyone else out in the lab or how much time they spent organizing the lab or all of these things that are still important to a research group necessarily have these like measurable research outcomes that everyone wants to see when i started my phd that was really like weird or difficult for me to like get my head around i think (laughs) i think especially if you're working on cutting edge science Mm. the chance of it actually working is much slimmer than if it than it you know than it than it not working and Mm. so i was working with you know types of equipment which were experimental which were new and i think they've improved since and that meant that there was a lot more null data that i did a lot of experiments but the amount that i could actually publish was very very limited because it's all about you've got to have the good results and i know full well i'm looking at papers now and i'm thinking i did a lot of this work before and if i'd have published those null results i would have been i would have got that citation but because it, the thing is not publishing null results or negative results, and it, it so it does mean that you've got to be lucky with the results to, mm. to a huge degree. Like even just lucky with writing a paper sometimes, and 
who your referees are and which journal you submit it to like yeah. I didn't realize how long the process was to like submit something to, to a yeah. journal get published like, I just feel like no one told me that at undergrad they were like just like publish a paper and it'll be fine but like no one told me it could be like a year of revisions or like yeah all these other things would come into play and it's a long process it's a long process mm-hmm. and and you talked about impact factor as well like you know the the sort of materials that I'm publishing or talking about are doing they're in smaller impact journals but the people that are going to read them are going to read them in those journals and they're just not sexy data they're not sexy you you can get it in nature or science if you include yeah, exactly. certain key words buzzwords but you know for the nuts and bolts of sort of material science they'll get read a lot but not in that high impact factor journal it's going to be a different one so uh, yeah <laughs> so just just coming back to the quantum world quantum computing so we i mean we already talked about the fact that it's got this huge amount of capability in terms of processing data potentially potential um processing power what does that mean for and we talked about sort of being able to model experiments and things like that but what about for everyday people is there any benefit is there anything that could spin out that could be used for people? Well, I think it's very similar to the way that computers were introduced into like our everyday lives. Okay. Like initially kind of research facilities were the first people to have like computers at all. Yeah. And then slowly they kind of spread out to everyone else now carrying them in their pockets essentially. Yeah. And I don't think there is going to be a need for everyone to like carry a quantum computer in their phone or anything like that at all. I don't think we'll get down to a stage where like they're going to be that small anytime soon at all. Yeah. Um, so I think it will just be like again like research facilities. I mean the military are very involved in quantum computing as well. Um, they're very interested in it. Um, yeah. There'll be the people who are like investing huge amounts of money into the research at the moment and benefiting from it like initially. I can't. I like don't really know what kind of timescales we can expect oh. like everyone to be carrying a quantum computer or anything like that. I mean. Like, I already have a quantum computer and they have like a number of qubits already entangled together that you can access and things like that. But there's lots of different groups and people across the world working on it um, as well. So like it is going to happen at some point yeah. and it is going to be in- influencing research or the military or like, all these kind of things, but maybe just not on like the day-to-day level anytime soon. Why is it that the military are in interested in it though i guess just having that extra well i suppose <laughs> i don't really know i don't honestly don't know like why they would be interested in it maybe they, like cut this out <laughs> so i don't know what the reason is no well like, like in america they've like massively invested yeah in like, the research that's happening there um and i think i think even here as well because my my thought i was I think it's things with... like tracking and security as well security that's what i was thinking yeah yeah so like quantum cryptography is something that like banks and stuff interested in as well so keeping our data secure yeah um and also the issue comes up is like who then has that power as well because once you have a quantum computer you can hack like any current encrypted system that we are currently using because your computer is just like so much more powerful who's going to have access to that knowledge and that data and that power essentially is i think of course the concern that's interesting you 
yeah, the, I, I like the security aspect. So is it harder to get data without the... Oh, how, how does it... How could it... How could it improve security? Um... How does quantum photography work? This is not my area of expertise, like at all. Like, oh, I'm not that's fine. Yeah, a yeah. Theoretical, sorry. like quantum scientist, like at all. So anyone is like free to correct me or anything. If you don't want to but talk think... about that, I, I'm I'm poking out there, so you don't have to. Yeah, answer. maybe I'd, I'd maybe try and say something. It doesn't make any sense, so you can just kind of <laughs> cut it out later. Um, but I think the way that like kind of basic quantum photography would work is that you could tell really easily if somebody was eavesdropping on your channel oh okay because of like how you're interpreting the data that you're you've like you've received i think that's i think that's the reason i'm not telling you no that's, that's i cool. do know that like quantum photography is like something that finance like finance like banking security they're all interested interested and like now data's kind of become the new cash as it were or the new like yeah power, how we store that and how we process that is I got to catch up as well with how important data is. So that's kind of, I guess, another reason why computer is so interesting to a lot of people. Okay. Um, no, that's cool. So, I mean, hopefully maybe something a little bit um, that is more closely related to your research, but bear in mind, like I say, I, I do not have a physics background, but we're talking about quantum, so I, I feel like the whole thing with quantum is we don't know what the data is. So, you know, how do you how are you actually measuring whether these things are working? How do you know whether they're working? I sort of feel like observing uh, quantum information, I feel like it's not supposed to be uh, observed, right? <laughs> okay, so if, you, if we think about exactly what I'm doing in my research, yep. basically what I'm doing is looking at these defects in diamonds that um, when you shine green light on them, they emit red photons. Okay. And the amount of red photons they emit will indicate which spin state that defect is in. And that spin state essentially is analogous to the kind of one and zero of a classical bit. You can be both one and zero at the same time. So basically what you'll have is you'll have like kind of two separate qubits or two separate defects in different pieces, pieces of diamond. And you'll subject them to a number of excitations of optical and like microwave range essentially. And they'll emit photons and you'll be like collecting those photons in a way where you can't tell which qubit has which quantum bit has emitted which photons and when you when you collect two sequential photons um those two qubits will be entangled and they'll be acting as one uh-huh. and you essentially could then perform a quantum computing algorithm on that entangled state because and you'd be collecting photons and things like that. oh that's cool so, so basically you're not directly measuring your individual qubits you're kind of measuring the emissions of those qubits but you can't tell what qubits emitting what because they're all behaving as one state essentially so you, you really can't cool. like directly say okay this this qubit's doing exactly this it does kind of defy the laws of quantum mechanics essentially um so you kind of have to work around that it's good that you can because like i say I, I i i don't know like say my physics isn't great but i just had this idea that you know as soon as we observe it, we don't know what it is. And so we couldn't look at the data. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to be storing my bank details in a quantum computer, yeah. I want to make sure that, you know, the money that I put in is the money that comes out. Well, no, if it goes up a little bit, that'd be fine. I mean, but... <laughs> Interest rates are really low at the moment. So, you know. <laughs> so is my bank account balance, unfortunately. 
Uh, I am not making the most of that. Oxford rent isn't cheap. <laughs> yeah, so so in the day to day, in the day to day in the lab, you you basically said that you're you're shining lasers at, at, at diamonds. Is is that right? So what's the setup for that? What's your sort of typical experiment look like? So we've been in our lab as laser safety officer for the department. But you've seen been. like all of our lasers on and hopefully safely put together. Um, so I basically had to build what's called a confocal microscope, yep. which is a bit like a wide field microscope where, you know, you just have like a white light source or you have like a light source and you just see like one image yep. of like what we're looking at. Basically, what a confocal microscope does is it got a pinhole on the collection arm of the light or light reflection on the surface. So it blocks out all the out of focus light. Yep. you're like basically this the hole we're looking through is really tiny yeah you just would scan it across your sample you can get like quite a high diffraction limited resolution image of what you're trying to look at so i'll be looking at basically a chunk of diamond that's got defects in certain locations i'll be looking for bright spots in my image and they'd be my defects that i would then be collecting red photons from oh wow so it's it's basically like an optical table with loads of different optics on it and some green laser light that you might see and then like a, a dark covered collection that goes to a screen and they were basically looking for like bright spots on the screen and when you're I also set up a system so I can control the spin state of the defect so you're controlling how much red light your individual defects are emitting so wow. you'd be looking at kind of like the individual counts from one defect and at a certain point, you'd look for like a dip in those defects and, and like a peak. And yeah, it's just looking at a screen and waiting for the lines to do the right thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, that sounds about right. It's basically like all of science is looking at a screen away for something to appear, I feel. Like so much of my time is just doing that. So much of my time. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a screen and trying to make it do what you want it to do. Um... But know that it's doing it on its own and not just because you forced it in some way. So, and how are you? How well, are you? Oh, sorry. I am actually forcing it to behave in a way I want it to. Ah, so yes. I will be like applying like either a microwave field or a magnetic field to control these defects um, and to change their spin properties. Yeah. And I'll be like examining those spin properties by looking at the the photon emission from that defect. I'm purposefully like causing changes to the defect. Yeah, that's that's legitimate science. I, I'm sort of talking about when you take a graph and you're like, I'm reading yeah. it this way by putting it through this filter so that it says what I want it to say. Mm. Uh, data manipulation is what I'm talking about. You're yeah. you're doing experiments. That's legitimate. That's above board. And with these diamonds, so are you putting the defects in there or are they naturally occurring? So we actually do both. Okay. Um so the diamond that I use is not a diamond that's mined in the ground. Yep. It's diamond that's grown in a laboratory yep. using a process called chemical vapor deposition, which essentially is where you create a plasma of like hydrocarbon gas and you cause the diamond to grow in like really thin layers. Yep. And a similar, not similar how you use thin deposition at all, but you just grow layers of diamond off each other. But you get this really like high quality, really pure diamond. It doesn't have many defects in it yep. initially, but like, the nitrogen vacancy center does occur naturally because there's nitrogen in the air and that can become incorporated into the diamond as it's growing 
both in the ground and in a lab. Okay. Um, but normally you don't you want to have your defects in specific locations. So you can either use a process called iron implantation, where you basically bombard the surface of like um, accelerated nitrogen atoms, and then you have these NB centers in your in your diamond, like in the in the surface of it. But a lot of what our group is also doing is developing this process called laser writing of defects as well. Oh. Some of the papers that have been published by um, the Fundamental Materials Group in Oxford has been on that work. So we're using like a high-powered laser to um, write defects at really specific locations. So you can literally have like an array of defects with like a few hundred nanometers accuracy as to where each defect is. Rather than having to like search through your diamond for like a really nice defect that's behaving well, that's doing what you expect it to, you can literally write one into the location that you want it to be. That's not what that's like group what the group's doing. I'm not necessarily me, but we talk about it quite a lot. It's quite cool. Yeah, no, um, I, I think that's really cool, and and that's it, isn't it? It's so you've got members of the group that are sort of. Um, making these materials and then you've got people that are putting the defects in so that they're where you want them and then you can program what the defects gonna you you can control the spin of the defects and so you know you're sort of you're looking at all the different aspects within your Mm -hmm. group um which is really cool with collaborators as well it's not just our group does all the work there's group in engineering doing some of that work um as well yeah groups in warwick and strathclyde and um, Cambridge as well so it's a really like national project and national projects that we're working on it's interesting because we were talking before about the lack of collaboration but actually we're seeing more and more um... I think you have to like yeah. you just can't do every, like the stuff that we're doing like from growing diamond to like putting in defects and do optical characterization that I'm doing to like all these other things you just need to have this knowledge that like, you just can't do it in one group it's just like too much work it really is, um, and actually, I'd say it's interesting that we're talking about it before because I'd say that the funding bodies are actually encouraging; they're more likely yeah. to give you funding if you are if it's a collaborative project. So you're forcing that collaboration, and I don't see that as a bad thing. When I'm saying forcing collaboration, I'm saying you, you're no. making people. You're saying we'll give you money as long as you're working together, and that's that's no bad thing at all. It also means you're like sharing what's worked really well and what hasn't worked well. I think more directly rather than having published papers, um, because like the group that I did my master's project in is now the group we collaborate with. So I kind of went there and had to do everything and then brought it to yeah. Oxford essentially. So yeah. that in itself has just bred more collaboration uh, as well. That's cool. I mean, my my actual uh, my PhD was in Manchester, Manchester Metropolitan, and we it was a collaborative project between Manmet, University of Liverpool, and Oxford University. So uh, one of the groups in Oxford, I knew them uh, many moons ago. Unfortunately, it's quite a long time since I was on that project, but it's it's um, it you know that was yeah that was like twelve fifteen years ago, and we there, there were some collaborations sometimes occasionally you know which is nice to see really silly little story uh you were talking about growing um uh diamonds so uh, i used to make i used to make diamond like carbon films mm-hmm. and uh one of the processes basically i'd take carbon and i'd be using magnetron sputtering and i'd try and i'd be trying to influence 
what I grew that so the structure which is exactly what you're talking about I was trying to do it by changing the properties of the plasma Mm. and I gave I where I was I didn't I couldn't go and do all the SEM work myself or do all the uh, uh the various analytics I had to get other people to do it and I gave this person all my samples and said oh you know can you measure them yeah. and he gave them he gave them back to me and he said oh these ones are really good they're sort of they're really good sort of uh, diamond I was like oh that's fantastic he's like yeah they were almost there and then I annealed them and then I did this to them and then I did that to them and he processed all my samples and it's like no I needed to know what they were oh. <laughs> so he, he like annealed out everything you wanted to look at or all the samples that i gave him he annealed them and then measured them he was like oh they were so close so i uh, i i did some were they supposed to be annealed like no i wanted to know what i'd made the whole point yeah. of my technique was what came out of the chamber and have i managed to get towards diamond like carbon and he added these extra process i i still don't understand that was a long time ago and it was like I mean, it was. You need, to, you need to be like so good at communicating when you're doing collaborative work, yeah. um, like this, especially because it's so easy to ruin a sample. <laughs> like, I just um, didn't understand. The samples that we work on literally get sent across the country, and everyone has like a different step on them. Yeah. And if you then like drop the sample or you like put it in the wrong solution, yeah. not saying I've done that, but I've seen it happen. <laughs> And it's not just like the sample's expensive, it's like the hours of work that has gone into like creating that sample. Oh um, no, absolutely. I've I've lost samples, I've dropped samples. It's almost like a rite of passage, you have to lose one, otherwise you'd just be too scared to ever do any work with your samples. Absolutely. So, and I think once you've been in sort of the research side for a while, you know that equipment's gonna break and sometimes it's <laughs> your fault and sometimes it's just happened you're gonna drop a sample you're gonna lose a sample you're gonna yeah. measure something wrong like you're gonna set some equipment on fire and maybe you're gonna have a chemical release <laughs> oh, is that just me okay <laughs> <laughs> what have you set on fire in the lab one of our bits of equipment set on fire a couple of years ago <laughs> <laughs> I got, yeah i got to use a fire extinguisher for real <laughs> Someone, someone came into my for the positives. Someone, um, I know it was quite exciting. You know, someone came into my office and said, um, "Clara, there's a fire." And I'm what, like, just, I just walked in. I'm like, "Oh, the lab's on fire." Yeah, I think, I think um, the researcher that was doing the work and the and the person that came in, I think they were just so surprised. They weren't. Ex- yeah. I mean, I wasn't expecting it. I've been doing this for a long time, and I'd never seen deposition equipment just set on fire. I still can't you know what, quite you know explain it. Pardon? You know what caused it? It was in the height of summer. I think everything just got super, super, super hot, I think, which is quite remarkable. I mean, our deposition equipments are basically a bunch of steel and, mm-hmm. like, some PTFE maybe. Like, there's nothing, there's no wood, there's no paper, there's no, it's not. And it, yeah, one of the things, so. Yeah, so someone walked in and said, it's on fire, and I'm like, you're gonna put it out and he went oh <laughs> oh no i've not had anything set on fire in the lab oh no that that was a first that was i mean i've been doing it for well there were fires <laughs> so I, the... it's like being at school and someone that's at the bunsen burner off or something like oh that. i they did that some paper in the bunsen burner <laughs> oh i did that i once i was drying my hands on tissue paper and i it unraveled all along the desk and it went i was really scattered at school but uh, i think these days i'd have been like 
kicked out of class or something, but it was a different time. No, um, I worked for a company and they were actually making, if you're making aluminium oxide and it's slightly substoichiometric, it's highly, um, it's it's likely to set on fire, basically. And uh, the group that I did my PhD with, they were actually making pyrotechnic materials. So if you were opened it and you opened it too fast, they'd set on fire. But then it was the coatings that would set on fire, not the equipment. The equipment was, that was a new one. <laughs> Did it ruin anything in the lab? Like once you put it out, like did any of the equipment get broken? Uh, there was pit, there were bits that we had to replace. So the the um, I said there was the um, the PTFE uh, sort of the ceramic spacers, the electrical spacers. They they just melted. They just turned to carbon. So we had to replace them. But I still can't. That's the really annoying thing. Like every so often this stuff happens, or it's because someone's done something ridiculous. This was just. Unluck. I don't know. It was just bizarre. <laughs> Still can't quite explain it. <laughs> so go figure. <laughs> now you're the laser safety officer. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, I've not lost an eye with a laser yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. So you, so you, you said that in your lab you're sort of spending a lot of the time uh, measuring. You're you're st st spending a lot of time staring at the screen. Is that right? Are you? able to do other stuff are you able to analyze what you've got afterwards what yes obviously there's a lot of like kind of data analysis that you do post um, autocratic characterization and things like that it's kind of inevitable and you and also you don't want to measure like one incident you'll do it like a number of times and amass like a set of data statistics on your sample to see how good or bad that sample is yeah essentially oh, there's a lot cool. of data processing i think science oh there is yeah um yeah there is i think but and like, yeah. it's fitting your like data to a model as well okay yeah you might have to do so at the moment i'm doing a lot of simulating obviously working from home for the last like few months yeah um as so our labs have been closed um i've been trying to simulate like a, a micro field that i'd put my diamonds in to control that spin state ah. so i've been trying to like simulate what microphone I might get from certain circuit boards or certain like loops and things like that. That's been like quite like data heavy or like analysis heavy. Okay, cool. But um yeah, I think I was asking in a terrible way. But yeah, you're doing some simulation as well of circuits and yeah. change what you're doing and you're designing the systems. You're not yeah. just measuring what you you've got. So I to, when I first started in Oxford, literally my first day, um my supervisor was like Pure optics build your microscope. I had to work out how to build a microscope in my first term. I think um, that's fantastic way of doing so it's it. Very, it's very hands-on. Yeah. Um, and luckily the group's amazing. So anytime you wanted help, you could just like ask one of the postdocs and they'd like come and help you. Yeah. You do it. There was a lot of like knowledge in the group that I could benefit from when I started. And we kind of maintain this kind of like teaching and help each other out in the group as we as we've kind of gone on. But yeah, literally my first job was to build like a room temperature focal microscope and then work yeah. out how to add like a microwave field and a magnetic field and uh, work out a sample stage and all these things i had never like thought about so i've moved lab <laughs> twice now since oh, i've yeah. been in i've had to rebuild the microscope every time yeah lab as well so it's going under like a lot of iterations but it means i know how everything works together i'm very protective of my my baby um <laughs> yeah 
it's been like I've learned like so much during my PhD and so many different things I hadn't expected because I even had to like write some of the software to control the hardware that we were using um I've done like some focus iron beam milling I've done like sample cleaning and like so many different things I think that's kind of what I wanted from my PhD to just learn how to do all these different things and really not limit myself to what my project was but to learn all these other things as well so that's what I love about material science like and you said this at the beginning you know it there's so much engineering involved and then there's the bits of chemistry because you've got to go into that and then there's the physics side of it I love that materials is a hybrid science I mean I think it's great and you you meet people that have such different backgrounds academically you know that you know and I know that I've got the engineering brain I can build the equipment and put it together but I don't necessarily have that chemistry knowledge or the physics knowledge but that's why we have these groups and you have that knowledge within the group it's I just find it really interesting so you said that you're writing up at the moment I'm supposed to be <laughs> it's not really you happening. are writing up it it can seem slow <laughs> it's slow yeah I'm trying I think like lockdown really like got in the way of me finishing up my experiments because I only had like a few months left um yeah. of lab time and then literally the pandemic happened and you weren't allowed to go anymore um Oh, let's start writing up then instead without the rest of my data yeah unfortunately um so we just opened up our labs as well and it's you know the people that are at the end like you we mm. want to if they do need to get any data in then they need to get the data in. It's sort of it's always nice when you're sort of supervising to be able to say like you've got to stop going in the lab and lockdown certainly did that but 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 uh unfortunately there were some things that you still need to finish off so are you able to um finish off those experiments now are you able yeah, I to finish them off and finish them off now um i just found work from home wasn't very productive during during lockdown it's just... very difficult i think one thing to remember is that it wasn't you weren't choosing to work from home you weren't choosing no. to work at home you had to be at home and we couldn't go anywhere we couldn't see anybody we still really can't see anybody um and that was like really difficult i think yeah to make that comparison and it's interesting watching like academic twitter yeah. some people are doing really well and publishing papers and starting postdocs some people are just like i've done nothing for like two weeks yeah um i've like baked some banana bread and gone on a protest and that's all i've done it's so, it's really difficult and when you're writing so during my writing, I was pretty much um, either going running or climbing every single day because mm -hmm. I wanted to go out. But with the pandemic, that's not it's not that easy. It's you, yeah. and it's not necessarily saying that you should be doing the exercise. It's just that you're doing. I found it was really helpful to just get away from it for an hour, and it meant that I was able to be a lot more productive when I was writing. And you can't like you're in that same space. You're in the house. You're not you're not even going to the shops or going to mm. the bar or whatever it is the cinema i think it also really taught us how much the choices we've made in our life and what that like we had no one's suddenly chosen to live like this we've all been forced to and we're all just sort of like i'm not doing a rej anymore but yeah we're all just like living at the extremes of our choices like i've chosen to live alone yeah. but i don't want to be alone all the time <laughs> um and I realised actually I don't really like being on my own 
all the time either I much prefer like going into the lab I much prefer like working in the office yeah but I didn't really have that choice um anymore so the first year I loved it but I actually didn't spend that much time on my own in yeah. my flat I spent a lot of time in the department or like how yeah but I, I think mean, it'll be I, so I interesting on like science I think it it already has been interesting and there's been like a lot of articles published about the kind of negative impact it's had especially on women yeah um lockdown how like when publication records have like dropped significantly but like men's have like stayed the same if not increased um and even just watching like how our groups developed over lockdown like we've had new people start and they've not even met any of us in real life they've started a phd and been to the lab like one day and no one's even been in like it's just really strange i don't know what the impact is going to be on our research it's hard isn't it uh yeah no it's hard i mean i I, we had a postdoc arrive a week before we locked down (laughs) and i've still not because um needed to get the equipment up and running and we need to test it's working and stuff like that like i've had to say to him like because i can't just have someone it normally i'd be showing him and training him and stuff like that but i can't do that now it's it's difficult it's a different way of doing science i mean so we were talking before, but, you know, I've, I've just, there was a lot of things that I wanted to do. And part of that was build up sort of YouTube videos and learn how to to make them and how to do the science animations and all the other stuff. And so that's been great. It's like I've had the time to do that, but it is, it is a, it is a change. It is a shift. There's no two ways about it. So we're talking this week, the A-levels came out in the UK. The A-level results came out last week and the whole you know who's going to be able to go to university who's not and then this week the gcse results come out and that's going to impact tomorrow, on right? they come out tomorrow yeah thursday and that's going to impact a level results right uh, that's going to impact a level choices and and even if it will impact university choices as well because look at your gc results when yep. you apply to universities as well especially russell group ones yeah they probably do Maybe. yeah gcse yeah. results as well yeah, I, I I forget. I'm I'm so long past that. I don't even know what my GCSEs were <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you get to a certain point where they're just. But no yeah. one asks you anymore, so you don't really need to like remember. Yeah, I, I I still don't know if anyone at Oxford knows that I haven't got A levels. I actually don't have A levels. A levels. No, I never finished school. Do you have a PhD? Yeah, I know. I um yeah, I never finished school. I I just my depression was really bad, so I dropped out and so a few years later i went i actually did an access course but i didn't finish that and then i went back and i did a foundation course so this is why we talk about foundation courses in oxford and i i fully agree because i was just going through a lot of problems in my life and so a levels didn't work for me at the time so i did a foundation then i got onto a degree i got my first class degree then i got off i worked in industry then i got the phd so I like to show people that you don't necessarily have to have gone through the route, but I will say it's easier if you can. <laughs> so I think this is like a really important conversation to be having that like currently the way education stands, it is failing a significant number of people. Yeah. And like there are so many different ways for people to like achieve like what they want. There doesn't yeah. need to be like one one route to it. And not everyone has like the ability to like study for A-levels at 18 and go to university at 18. And it's actually quite a privilege that you can, I think, in some respect. Yeah. It's always going to come like the like 
like the path you have to take is to go to university what at 18 mm. that doesn't work out for everybody like not everyone wants to go to university at 18 19 and I, I know my like my path was like really straightforward but I kind of wish I'd done something a bit different I've, I've just been like at school or like at university for like forever and I'll never leave mm. um and I think it's really, and I've ended the PhD now, so I'm really just like, you know, getting a bit like tired of being in academia all the time. Mm. But yeah, I wish there was more discussions about other ways to learn skills and knowledge, and you could still be like in an academic research environment having not done a degree if you wanted to. I know um, through my youth work, so I work with you know <laughs> LGBTI plus youth groups, and there's so much bullying goes on that those kids just want to finish school they don't care what grade they get they just want to get out of school and they're smart kids and you talk to them about you know are you interested in university it's like no i just want to get out i just want to get out and like i say there's university is not for everyone but i know that they're being failed by a school system where they're bullied and where the schools aren't don't have the resources to help them and And so what do we do to make sure that they achieve their maximum potential afterwards? You know, we can't say that in universities, we just take the people that have got these grades. And even there's even I I get quite annoyed as well, because I hear about the universities talking about um, increasing the number of people that come from state schools, which I think is fantastic. I'm not I I agree with that 100 percent. But we forget that some people who go to the private schools go on bursaries so i think yeah. i think i uh i was looking at my old school i went to my school as a private school i went on a bursary i would not have been able to go and i think they said they that something like 50 percent of their students are on bursaries and mm-hmm. so i hate to think that they're being discriminated against because they go to a private school and within the school it's probably the people with money that are gonna you know be pushed by the school as it you know I mean, I know that there's a, a definite class divide in those schools because I was I was there, and so I feel like it's not just state schools. I think you have to look at more factors than that. And there's nothing wrong with someone from a private school, but from a working class, a council estate in the north of Manchester, like me, um, nothing's ever black and white. We shouldn't be saying, "Oh, nobody from private school, nobody from state was, school." That was the massive issue of the algorithm that they chose to yeah. predict the A-level results. Because it was even people who were going to the same schools that were getting completely different A-level results. Yeah. As well, based on like where they lived and all these other things. Like, yeah. <laughs> probably should say this, but like when I was A-level, my school invested in these like algorithm predicted A-level results. Okay. And I got like two grades higher than all of my predictions. And if I had got my predicted grades in the algorithm, I wouldn't have got into any of my universities. So I knew, like, when they said this in March, I was like not going to work out i know what's going to happen like they really need to change the algorithm or just use the predicted grades that teachers gave them yeah. like yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really hard to capture all of that information because it's so it's so complicated i think you can't just give a computer all of this data which is a limitation of computing in general oh, I think. yeah that... and expect it to like fit all of these possibilities especially when the algorithm's written by biased people to begin with and we often hear about that with AI, right? I mean, there's there's certain things that slip in. Yeah. We say that computers aren't biased, but that's not. But the programmers are, unfortunately. Programmers are, and yeah. the people like using that program are as well. Yeah, and it's really 
but I'm not sure how hard it is to write unbiased program. I don't understand like a lot like programming, but there's been a lot of like papers written about how they need to change the entire structure of programming as it's as it stands, I think, to make yeah. it more unbiased. I was really interested to hear about on like decolonizing computing, I think. Uh, yeah. It's interesting how much of an impact there are. And so I think that's a really nice sort of segue because I mean obviously you've done a lot, you've been winning, running running whims uh so the women in yeah, materials. women in materials and so you've been and you've put on a conference the last few years back when do you remember when we could have conferences do you remember that you've been i know i know actually like we didn't i didn't because finishing my phd i didn't manage to organize like the conference this year and then like when the pandemic happened i kind of was like oh, one thing less to do <laughs> well this is it the trouble is the people that are running these things are always the people that are super busy and there's a lot yeah. of work and it's it's true actually sometimes it's like because you want to do them and you need to do them yeah. and you know they're important but sometimes you need five minutes for you mm. so it also got to the point where i like, wasn't i really wasn't doing enough phd work and yeah. i think like i don't want to say activist burnout because i'm not an activist but like you can get burnt out doing all of these things like and it's so easy just to feel like so overwhelmed by the whole the whole system and to get distracted by it because the reason you're doing it is because you really really care yeah and then when like you don't have that support and you're not like taking care of yourself it's so easy just to burn out and not and just not want to do anything at all in the end yeah um, I, maybe the lockdown was also good for that all of us taking a break finally i know for me it was it came at a really good time it meant that i had to stop sort of traveling around the country doing meetings it mm -hmm. meant that i wasn't going here and there and I got to do a lot of stuff that I hadn't done for a while. Doesn't mean that I don't want to carry on. You know, I, I still want to do that stuff. But mm -hmm. um, I've yeah. been to so many great like Zoom conferences though, and like that's good online lectures and seminars and things like that. They've been really good. That's good. We've, we've been so I've been with the Tigers in STEM group. With there's been mm -hmm. a series of physics talks, and I I did one for the Institute of Physics as well. I don't know. I think I think you can definitely see people. Um, you know at the beginning loads of people were tuning in then people started tuning out because they were just at a bit of conference and now it seems to be a little bit more up and down i know that the the um lgbt seminar that i've gone to every year we were supposed to be holding it at oxford in january so that's going to be an online event now and i don't know how i feel about online events it's great for webinars and seminars conferences i'm not sure because there's so much about in-person yeah. interaction in terms of the networking but at the same time it means that they're more accessible for people who can't get there who have yeah. maybe uh, you know um people with me who just are too tired to go to a conference or people who can't get on the train because the trains yeah. don't have enough accessibility or whatever so um, that's an interesting one I, there's pros and cons and this is why we need a hybrid system moving forward this is why yeah. we need to be able to sort of and I think that's one good thing about the pandemic is that we've seen that we can use technology now. Yeah. And the the truth is that it's only two years ago that I was at a conference and they had someone Skyping from America and the sound was awful. It was a mess. But now things have really come on. Mm. So, yeah. No, it's been great. And I've been to like a couple of online conferences and I think the networking is always a bit of an issue. Yeah they've tried to be really creative like having a slack group or like a twitter thing or like was it like um ibm had like a discord where they were teaching everyone how to use like 
the quantum computer that you could log into. Oh, wow. Well. Well. Um, it was like a thousand people could log on to like learn on, on Discord to like learn how to use the like quantum computer from IBM. Oh, wow. Um, they had like a summer school, which I didn't go to, but like I heard it was really good. Yeah, there's been some really creative like things happening using like tech that tech that we have. And I've been to a lot of like networking drinks, which is a bit weird um, <laughs> on Zoom, but it's like you have these little breakout rooms and you have these like little conversations. Yeah. But I always find that one person ends up like chairing that conversation. Even there's just six of you in a room. Yeah. It's like chairing <laughs> like little room that you're in. So it's a bit weird. I'm curious for your feedback. We'll not do that here, but I'm curious in your feedback because we've talked about similar things for the LGBT seminar, mm-hmm. like how you do the networking aspect, and then do you have to have someone chairing it because otherwise there might be no conversation and yeah. have to. It's weird. It's um, I'm not sure, and I've not done. I've not been to any conferences. I guess I've just been going to webinars and uh, webinars <laughs> and seminars. I'm just saying letters at the minute. But... <laughs> Well, the APS March meeting went online like almost immediately. Ah, okay. And that was another big conference. Proton 2020 is going to be like all online as well. Okay. And like a number of our group have had to re- pre-record their talk. Yeah. And then they're going to give like live Q and A's as 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 the talk's been like aired or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, um, yeah, we've done that a couple of times, and I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I did. I was I was doing a webinar for the Institute of Physics, and I. I lost my internet for about 40 <laughs> seconds in the middle. I, yeah, I mean, these things just happen, right? These yeah. things happen. There's nothing you can do about it. But the, I knew that the audience sort of dropped while I was logged off, which is like... So, but I mean, it, you know, I realise we've been talking for an hour and five, so I don't want to sort of keep you on here forever. But, I mean, it's been really great working with you um, in terms of the equality and diversity work, and it gives me someone that mm-hmm. I can sort of bounce ideas off or ask advice from yeah, i'm so glad we met like so early into my phd yeah. and we could like work together quite a lot i think it's really good to find allies really early on well, not even allies it's someone to like support you with what you're doing like you've always been so supportive of like whims you've spoken at like so many of our events and even if like i'm hoping whims gets rebranded soon i feel like it's a bit exclusionary at the moment um, but yeah it's been like great to work with you it's well. it's that's interesting i know you've said it seems exclusionary but the trouble is that we still have issues with you know getting women in physics women in materials yeah um, i think i think my issue actually with like women's was that men felt uncomfortable yeah. coming to it and when most of the po- department is men like we need your support like we need you to come and listen to us and help us and tell us how you want us to be better as well yeah um it's not just about like women or you know and I, I realise uh, we were talking before about how modern computer is binary and how quantum isn't and stuff like that, which is nice because, you know, that's what we're trying to talk about when it comes to sex and gender as well. You know, we're trying to get yeah. people past the binary. <laughs> I read a great book and you need to read it as well, actually. Oh. You might have heard of it. It's called um, Life as a Unicorn. It's been written by Glam Roo. He's like a Muslim non-binary drag queen. And I think they're incredible. Yeah, um, I know them. Yeah. Yeah, he did a podcast recently with, um, what's that presenter from Channel 4 called? I've forgotten his name. And he talks about like the non-binariness of sexuality and, yes. and gender and quantum physics. And I was like, this is amazing. This is so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, their, memoir is, their memoir is incredible. Okay. So good. I've not read it. Yeah, they taught, they've done a few things. I, I think they did, oh... I'm just I'm just rambling now. I'm sure they did something with the TEDx uh, London group as well. 
um Reese. oh yeah maybe i think they did a talk it wasn't the one that i was at but they, i think they did a talk there so that that group seems to be really on it they're really they're, they're great organizers they're really good so what we'll do um i mean is there anything else that you feel that we've not talked about we've talked about quite a lot of different stuff and we've wandered around quite a lot but is there anything that you specifically want to talk about whether it's diversity whether it's quantum computing or anything and if there's not that's fine one thing that i don't i do want to say that i don't think gets talked about enough is the responsibility of scientists to be talking about equality and diversity and how you can make your research the most inclusive it needs to be um like I mentioned it earlier, how I hate using the word quantum supremacy, because it definitely has links to like white supremacy. And given that like a lot of quantum scientists are white men, I think that's something they should be questioning. And there was actually like um, an opinion piece that like I kind of signed my name to in Nature like a, a few months ago, or like last year now, um, about using the term like quantum advantage rather than quantum supremacy mm. and really looking at like the language that we use to talk about science and how we present our science how we consider where our science sits in society like I already mentioned who has access to quantum technology is going to be quite important I think in the future and how that's used whether it's like to help us or against us and to always be critical of where your science sits within society because I feel like too often discussion is oh like science is elite like it's pure it's untouchable like it's it's always going to be good and actually like your science doesn't sit in a vacuum it impacts everyone's life like socially um politically um culturally as well and i think that's something that a lot more scientists should remember and i feel like very often when i try and talk about racism or sexism or like LGBTQI issues in science, it often gets like downplayed as not important and like, oh, it's side work. And it's it's work that we do unpaid anyway. Yeah. But it's still really important to those issues alongside your science as, as well. And like maybe like our science doesn't exactly have these really neat analogies to like racism or sexism, but it's still what we experience every day. Yeah. And I think that's really important to talk about as well. It's amazing what a difference just being in a part in a department where you know you can be yourself for example yeah. and I, I've been in groups where I didn't feel I could I've been in other groups where I, I could have done but I didn't realize that because I didn't mm-hmm. see those signposts I didn't see those little things and so it's the little things little things really do impact your day-to-day in the lab yeah. and that impacts your science it can't not do I know that when my mental health was bad because of the things that I was worrying about, I wasn't writing papers. Mm-hmm. And yet, if I'd have felt more comfortable in the lab and I'd been able to talk about these things, then I would have been, I would have been writing papers. I mean, I said that I didn't always have the best results, but there were, I did have results and some of them mm-hmm. didn't get written about. And it's just like you say, just knowing that you're in an in a comfortable environment just knowing that you feel the difference it makes just feeling comfortable where you are whether it's that you don't have to worry about outing yourself as gay or that you're thinking well are these people laughing at my accent or are these people you know am I good enough because I'm a woman or because I'm a person of color like am I not good because I've done this thing wrong like all this time you spend like second guessing yourself and having imposter syndrome about things that you have no control over 
it's all like energy wasted and it's all like inefficient uses of your time it but it's nothing that like you should have to like fix to make yourself feel better they're all like in the environment that you work in you can't help but have that imposter syndrome if you don't mm-hmm. see anyone else like you yeah. around you can't help but have those that's just human nature that's how the brain works and so of course we need to try and address that of course you know if we say we've got a welcoming group we've got a welcoming department then it needs to be actively welcoming it's as simple as that mm. yeah it's I, not I, enough just to write a statement or to have something on your website you need to be living that yeah. and acting it every day absolutely i completely agree i can 100 percent. we've completely run out of time but one thing i want to add on the back mm. of that is oh yeah yeah i wish there were more discussions about mental health in academia yeah like there's just not there's just not enough like there's so many stresses on academics and it leads to really poor mental health and it's just like never discussed like ever i mean now i think now it's been discussed a little bit more and since like lockdown it's been talked about a bit more and like the whole like work-life balance is now in a discussion but like that's a whole other conversation that would take like another hour to like record i think no but i i i think some of the things that we've talked about like the um the pressure to publish not being mm. able to publish all these things add to your it's the work adds to your mental health you know i mean some people just have bad mental health but a lot of times bad mental health is because of the climate in academia yeah. and so we need to talk about it and then we need to talk about well why are these people getting stressed and then it's like well yeah. it's because of the climate because we only get a year contract and a year contract and a year contract it's because there's racism in the lab it's because the pressure to have those papers because we can't publish results that we've spent six months doing an experiment and there is a no result and we can't publish it all these things add to poor mental health really good point and i'm glad you brought that up so thank you so much and such a great conversation as always it's very rambly but i thought it was very us I think all of my uh, conversations with have been completely rambly. I mean, I've chosen, I've, I've not chosen, but I've asked friends to do the chatting. So yeah, they, I don't know. Hopefully there's some good science in there and there's some good uh, uh, equality stuff in there. And then I think it's important because scientists are human beings. And if we keep on looking at the stereotype scientists, it's like, no, that's not who we are. That's not how we are. And doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of stuffy old um professors out there in science but some of us are real people too <laughs> even the stuffy professors are people too they okay, also yeah. have like feelings and home lives and things yeah. you might not know about them and also doing science as well yeah no you're absolutely right i um yeah yeah no you're right <laughs> should have should have thought about that it's um but i, I do think there's this like impression in like the media or just like in society where like scientists are just seen as like untouchable and like just do the work all the time we don't have lives and we don't have feelings or something and we're just like robotic or something and we're not like we're just normal people i think that's not helped because there are a couple of sort of you know say prominent scientists who they can do that they're quite happy to just spend 24 7 working they can do four Mm. hours sleep and so they can publish papers so they're successful they get the grants and they're on tv maybe or they've got some sort of fame Mm. we're not and they're the people that are getting the spotlight as scientists and like i say 
it's because we're all different so there's some people who can do that but it doesn't mean that if you can't that it's you're not a good scientist it means that you do it differently yeah and so we need to start showing whether it's the way people work as well as other diversities we've got to show that scientists are all different and there isn't one right way cool all right well with that i'm gonna uh wrap up so thank you so much for um you're welcome thank you for having me yeah it's it's lovely to talk to you again (laughs) i know i can't believe it's been so long since we chatted it's just that's really sad I, i miss people i do miss people around the lab so are you in the lab tomorrow I am, yes. I'm in on Friday. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, I'm in most days, but I'm trying to work from home on Friday. I'm in most days, but I'm trying to work from home on Fridays at the moment. Um, But we'll we'll arrange it. You've got a few... How much time have you got left in the lab? A few months, like, loads of time. We got it, we got it. All right. Yeah, I'll be around for a while. Yeah. Don't worry. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, and with that, I'll cut to my outro. (laughs) Cool, well, um, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that conversation, as you can tell. Me and Chelsea are kind of friends, so, uh, but it's always great to learn some new stuff. Um, so if you like that, like I say, I'll put her uh, Twitter link below, and um, don't forget that I'll have mine down there, and also if you want to like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, bye-bye.